This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Thursday, the latest jobless figures release. What will it mean for the election campaign? And more long queues expected at airports as travellers take to the skies for the Easter weekend. This is not going to be our long-term future. But there are major staffing problems at the airport and there are some, you know, systems issues too in terms of travellers themselves. But it's not unique to Australia. This is happening all over the world. First up today, jobs, jobs, jobs. Australia's official unemployment rate has come in at 4%. The headline jobless rate hasn't met the government's hopes of something with a three in front of it, but it remains crucial to the federal election campaign. With the details, I'm joined now by the ABC's senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, good afternoon. So that the rate didn't fall below a 4%. How likely is it that getting into the threes might be a bit more difficult than expected? Well, Sally, uh, good afternoon. As we saw in the March 29 budget, um, uh, Treasury's uh, tipping a jobless rate of actually 3.75% by the end of the year, but still a bit of the way to go. Uh, probably disappointing for the Treasurer and the Prime Minister in an election that's uh, been framed around jobs, 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 and of course, strong economic management. Still, that uh, 4% steady jobless level is a big talking point this week, especially given Anthony Albanese's misstep a few days back on the correct number. But the government will, of course, be talking up 18,000 new jobs created in March, a bit lower than expected, but underemployment lower at 6.3%. That's people who want to work more but can't get the hours. And importantly, youth unemployment lower at 8.3%, though hours worked are down by 10 million hours. Now, of course, this is a long way from 2020 when high double-digit unemployment was on the cards, kept artificially lower by a job keeper and billions of dollars in emergency stimulus. But uh, we also have this 4% jobless rate because uh, immigration has been frozen, leading to a tighter jobs market. It is important to note that uh, the employment update from the ABS is based on a survey of 26,000 households rather than a census, and the numbers can bounce around from month to month. Also, working one hour a week can be counted as being a job, and that's a bit of a big criticism. Uh, but regardless, uh, more evidence that the economic bounce is well underway, but there is, in fact, a concern that the economy might be starting to run a bit too hot. Peter, for our listeners who might be worried about mortgage repayments, so when you look at the labour market, how much pressure could that be putting on the Reserve Bank to increase interest rates? Well, uh, today's uh, consistently uh, strong and steady uh, jobs result is a big factor for the Reserve Bank to consider. The next part of the jigsaw for the Reserve Bank when considering where to take interest rates is on the 27th of April when we see the next quarterly inflation reading. Uh, consumer inflation is currently at 3.5%. It probably feels a bit more than when people who've been out there shopping. But given what we're seeing around the world at the moment, especially in the United States and the United Kingdom, 
system uh, where inflation is running pretty hot. Australian inflation is also uh, set to surge. There's criticism that the RBA is lagging other central banks, but expectations are that the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe will be waiting for an important update on wages a few days before the May 21 election. But the big risk is that aggressive rate rises to catch up might end up damaging the economy, maybe even causing a recession. Independent economist Stephen Kakoulis is tipping there might, just might, be a pre-election rate rise to head off election when the RBA board meets on May the 3rd. If there wasn't the election, we would be having interest rate hikes already. We just know that inflation pressures are building, and that's always a precursor to even higher inflation. So, look, the pressure's on for them to hike. The election might be the spanner in the works that sees them push it back until uh, June or July. If we see a red-hot inflation number in the official CPI numbers that are out on April the 27th, could that really force the Reserve Bank to go for a pre-election rate rise on the first Tuesday in May? Really, the only reason why they wouldn't be joining the likes of the US Federal Reserve or the Bank of England, the Bank of Canada and our friends at the RBNZ who hiked interest rates yesterday by 50 basis points would be the election. That would be the only thing working against a rate hike in May. That's independent economist Stephen Kukoulis there. Um, Peter Ryan, the Australian dollar is also a big indicator on where interest rates may be heading. What are we seeing there? Well, Sally, uh, the Australian dollar has uh, ticked slightly higher after that uh, employment reading, uh, now 74.6 US cents in late morning trade. Not a significant gain, but enough to show that there is confidence about the economic recovery underway in Australia, but also that uh, interest rates are set to rise, whether that's May, but probably more likely in June. Good on you. Thanks, Peter. That's our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan there. So what are the political implications of the unemployment news in the federal election campaign? Our reporter, David Lipson, joins me now. David, good afternoon. How are the two leaders framing these numbers? G'day, Sally. Look, there's certainly not going to be the political bang out of this announcement that there would have been had it gone down as expected, the unemployment rate. The government has, as you just heard, been talking up the fact that it could move to a number with a three in front of it. That didn't happen this month. So it does deprive the government of a new weapon in the campaign, but it also doesn't really inflict any damage on the government either. Let's be frank, the headline figure is still a very good number, 4%, the lowest it's ever been since the ABS started putting out monthly updates in 1974. It was, though, lower before that. And and remember, this is after it went up to almost 7.5% during the worst of the pandemic and was predicted to hit as high as 15%. We did catch up briefly with the Employment Minister, Stuart Robert, after this announcement came through. Here's what he said. Well, the Morrison government's strong economy and strong future is bearing fruit. Unemployment remains uh, at a 4% level, uh, but we're seeing record number of Australians in work, 30,389,000, which is 17,900 more Australians. And importantly, youth unemployment has dropped a full percent to 8.3%. The economic plan is working. Uh, The Morrison government's strong approach to running the economy is working, and we're seeing this reflected in the unemployment numbers today. It doesn't have a three in front of it, though. What we're seeing is the impact of the floods, and the ABS has made the point that data collection was difficult because of that flood impact, uh, and that flood impact, of course, continues to have a, uh, a challenging 
result because of it. However, we are seeing record numbers of Australians in work, over 17,000 more Australians in work, and a drop of a full 1% in youth unemployment. That's the Employment Minister, Stuart Robert. For Labor, well, they can still grab something out of the announcement today. The total number of hours worked is down by 10 million hours. This is what the Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, had to say before these numbers came out. Half a million people are working three jobs or more. Half a million. Think about that. Three jobs or more. And that is an increase of 50% since this government came to office. The truth is that what we need is secure work that provides enough income so that people can feed themselves, pay their rent, uh, get by. So Anthony Albanese there. And David, the Prime Minister has come under pressure over his promise to create a national integrity commission. How has he responded to that? Yes, he was accused of breaking an election promise in 2019 to introduce the integrity commission. And here are the facts. The coalition did put forward a model for an independent uh, integrity body. An exposure draft is what it's called, not quite legislation, but it was panned by pretty much every expert in the field as lacking teeth. Uh, Labor indicated that it wouldn't support it because it wanted improvements to what had been put forward. And the government, as a result, never actually put the legislation into the parliament and didn't really even try to negotiate with the crossbench uh, to, to sort of potentially get it through parliament, probably because it was worried that members of its own side uh, could actually cross the floor and back amendments to give such a commission more powers. In fact, one of those cross those backbenchers was standing next to the Prime Minister today, Bridget Archer, who actually did cross the floor last year to bring on debate on the matter. Today, well, she managed to avoid slam dunking the Prime Minister on the matter, but she also made it clear she, she had strong views here. Scott Morrison today sidestepped repeated questions, denied it was a broken promise. Uh, He failed to commit to try and find a way through this parliamentary blockage and and also blamed Labor for not supporting it, claiming he didn't want to see a New South Wales kangaroo court-style model installed. He also continually attempted to pivot back to his preferred message, the economy. Here's some of the back and forth between Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese from today. First one, Integrity Commission, are you committing to it? Well, you asked me about priorities, and I'll I'll talk about what my priorities are. Jobs, 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 and jobs. That's what my priority is. The reason why this Prime Minister doesn't want an anti-corruption commission is sitting on his front bench, because the National Integrity Commission would look at the money that was paid for land at Badgerys Creek of $30 million for land that was worth $3 million. It would look at the sports rort saga. It would look at all of the rorts. Anthony, having a crack at me is not a substitute for not having an economic plan and not knowing what's going on in the economy. Some of the back and forth there with uh, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison and also the opposition leader Anthony Albanese and before them our reporter David Lipson giving us an update from the campaign trail. If you're heading anywhere near a major Australian airport this weekend, be prepared for possible delays. Queues for check-in and security have been out the door at Sydney Airport today, but the lines are moving. Airport managers are expecting the busiest day in two years. But it's not just domestic travel that's roaring back. Carly Williams takes a look. 
It's been building for days now, and the mayhem at Australian airports is only getting worse. Well, travellers are struggling to get away smoothly as school holidays on the Easter break collide. Passengers have been forced to wait hours to make it through security checks. Today could be the busiest day for domestic travel in Australia ever. Travellers at both Sydney and Melbourne airports are facing large queues, traffic jams and cancelled flights. Overwhelming, literally overwhelming at this hour of the morning. And we're not flying out till quarter past one. We are nervous that we'll actually miss. We arrived here around 8.30. Um, our flight, they, it's cancelled. They just told us it's been cancelled. It's chaos, shambles, pretty uh, pretty painless, which is always a good thing. Heard about the delays and that. So, yeah, we, we were prepared, but so far it's been pretty It's smooth. the busiest day in more than two years across many of the nation's largest airports as people get away for the Easter break, with passengers being told to arrive up to two hours early. Margie Osmond is the CEO of the Tourism and Transport Forum. Look, it's not ideal, and I have to be honest, if you're standing in a queue with a, with little kiddies waiting to get onto a plane, uh, you know, it's, it's not your preferred option. But unfortunately, I think this is part of our transition back to normal travel. Margie Osmond points out it's not just a domestic issue. Something around 9 or 10% of people are heading overseas and their number one destination, not surprisingly, is New Zealand. Because pre-pandemic, the two biggest markets for Australia in terms of incoming visitors were in fact China and New Zealand at number two. A recent University of Sydney study shows 72% of Australians are planning an international trip. So what are the updated rules around heading overseas? Well, it really depends on what country you're travelling to. Tori Goddard is a travel expert at Brand USA. To get on a plane to the US, you do need to show proof of a negative COVID-19 viral test result, and that should be taken no more than one day before travel. Both a PCR test and antigen tests qualify. If you've recently had COVID and are about to go on an overseas holiday, you might be asking if there's extra red tape. You do need to secure a COVID-19 past positive medical clearance form. Uh, In the case of Qantas, this needs to be submitted online no more than 24 hours before your flight. And in, in addition to that, you'd need a form that's specific to travel to the US, which is a passenger disclosure form, um, which can also be found on the Qantas website. With those two forms, then there is no need to test. So you simply just submit those and then Qantas will go through and make sure that you're prioritised for your flight. Aussie traveller Anita Annabelle is on a round-the-world trip. She's in New York City and recently had covid so knows all about the guidelines. I had COVID back in January, so I was within the 90-day period. Uh, Travelling to Barcelona, you can either, you have to be fully vaccinated. If you're not fully vaccinated, you do have to have uh, a PCR or rat test. Coming from Barcelona to the US, you had to adhere to what was Barcelona to the US, not Australia to the US. You have to either have a negative rat test or PCR. If you've had COVID within the last 90 days, you're actually allowed into the country with a medical certificate. So you had to get that medical certificate in Sydney. So it's it's very complicated. Anita, Annabelle, is all this paperwork and red tape worth it? Are you enjoying your holiday? I am absolutely enjoying my holiday. Uh, It's just, it was so stressful and so confusing. With so much COVID on home soil, many of us will be factoring in a bit of extra paperwork before jumping on that overseas flight. 
if the country requires a PCR and you've had COVID at all in the last three months, I would be going and checking with your GP just in case and just get one of these forms filled out and then submit it to the airline so that they're aware. This is because the risk of returning a positive result, even though you may have recovered from the virus, is higher than you might think. A PCR test can still detect fragments of cells that carry genetic information of the virus. Dr Zach Turner says it depends where your immune status is at. He experienced this with a recent patient. As is the case with this patient in particular, had COVID uh, several weeks ago and then was still testing positive on, on the PCR test. Uh, three days before her flight and then two days before her flight. And then she's like, okay, gosh, now I have to try and do this. And so then we had to do a rush job and uh, try and get forms and things in. And thankfully, Qantas in this case was quite open to that. And they they sort of fast-tracked some of the forms and things for her. So she didn't miss all of her flights. And on April 18, Australia will scrap testing requirements for those returning home, meaning there'll be even less paperwork for those lucky enough to be travelling overseas again. That's Carly Williams there and additional reports Reporting from Cayman Gok. On ABC Radio, right across the country, you're with us on The World Today. There's still hope the world can avoid a climate catastrophe if all countries honour their Paris Agreement emission reduction targets. A new report says there's a 50% chance that we could keep global warming to below 2 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. Some climate experts say Australia needs to make big changes and they're worried the current election campaign is avoiding the issue. Catherine Gregory reports. Several years ago, it would have been almost unthinkable that we'd be able to avoid a complete climate catastrophe where global temperatures rose by at least another two degrees Celsius. But now there's some hope we can. If you look five or ten years back, uh, then it is absolutely in surprising uh, finding. At the time of the Paris Agreement, all the targets and pledges would have added up to more than three degrees of warming. So yes, uh, the world has come a long way. Associate Professor Malte Mannhausen is the lead researcher behind this study, published in the journal Nature Today. The study looked at the climate impact of each country's emissions reduction pledges made before and during the global COP26 conference to calculate what sort of warming trajectory we're on. We looked at all the targets and pledges that the countries officially submitted to the UNFCCC and we calculate the warming that uh, we then expect uh, if those pledges are fulfilled. And so there are pledges for 2030 and also long-term pledges, net zero targets for 2050 or thereabouts. And then we find that all these pledges added together will lead us to a best estimate warming of around 1.9 degrees uh, throughout the century. But there's also some bad news. With the insufficient pledges up to 2030, we are going to blast through the 1.5 degree warming level and therefore miss the 1.5 degree target unless the ambition this decade is going to be significantly enhanced. And we have all the technologies uh, for that. We uh, can do that in an economically cheap way. And imagine what that would mean. We've already had several years of drought, bushfires and now floods. And Malte Meinhausen warns it would only get worse. We can expect a quarter more drought intensities, drought frequencies, etc., etc. So there will be a whole lot more impacts. Malte Meinhausen says Australia is a prime example of a country that needs to urgently change what it's doing to reduce our emissions, not only because 
because we have a moral obligation, but also because it presents an economic opportunity. No matter what your political color is in the upcoming elections, um, if you're just interested in a long-term economic growth vision, then there's uh, a very good case to be made that Australia should much more than it recently has embrace that energy transition towards a net zero future. Professor Tim Flannery is with the Melbourne Sustainable Society Institute at the same university. He says the research is sobering. The fact that we have only a 50-50 chance of staying below two degrees if we, if we implement all of the pledges that the world's nations have made from Paris onwards is, is pretty stark. And he's worried Australia is not doing its part here because it's struggling with what he calls political paralysis. Both major parties have um, uh, policies that don't get us anywhere near where we need to get to to have a stable climate in future. Climate change has become one of the main issues for voters. But Tim Flannery points out both major political parties are failing to make it an election issue. You know, unless climate becomes a contested space, I guess, between the parties, it's hard for it to get breath in an election campaign, you know, because both sides are effectively agreeing same general sort of policy. So it needs to become a a contested space. And when that happens, I think you'd see a bit more engagement. You know, I think what everyone's missing here is that this is an absolute crisis. We need to act now. So this election is critically important. We need this issue on the agenda. Susan Harris-Rimmer is a professor of the Policy Innovation Hub at Griffith University. She's been looking at Australians' views on climate action and says the voting public increasingly want their government to do more. But she thinks the political parties are offering up different policies on climate change. It's just not being discussed properly. I, I keep waiting for a climate election. When's it going to happen? It has to happen now. There's no more time. Uh, you know, like if you if you look at the polls, they're not asking people about their climate change voting intentions. They're asking them about cost of living. So the way we kind of the election's been framed, it's not sort of a closed loop. You know what I mean? Everyone's told it's a cost of living election, so that's all anybody talks about. That's Professor Susan Harris-Rimmer from Griffith University. Catherine Gregory reporting there. The federal government is hopeful it can convince Solomon Islands not to go ahead with a security agreement with China. Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Zed Seselja, has, in his words, respectfully urged Solomon Islands Prime Minister Sogavare not to sign the deal. But is Australia's latest intervention too little, too late? Dr Tess Newton-Kane is a long-time analyst of the region and project lead for the Pacific Hub at Griffith University. It's, it's hard to predict how that will go. Sogavare is keeping this very close in terms of who he's talking to and who he's listening to. So we don't really know how much, um, you know, what he's taking in terms of internal soundings from either within government or within the wider society. You know, it's possible he may decide to just defer a decision for a while and, and like, kick the can down the road for a bit to give him, to give himself and other people a bit of a chance to draw breath. It's all been a bit frenzied over the last little while. What's the next step we're expecting from the US? Well, as we know, they are dispatching Kurt Campbell, who has indicated that he wants to meet with officials in Solomon Islands, and I assume he'll be wanting to meet with the Prime Minister. I understand that that meeting is pretty much locked in. How much of a wake-up call has this been for Australia in terms of maintaining and cultivating its relationships in the Pacific? Well, I think we've, you know, we've seen prior to COVID, the Pacific step-up was 
this government's signature foreign policy. And there was a lot of energy being put into things like ministerial visits into the region. You know, you need to be able to do a range of things all at once, you know, sort of focusing on one place to the detriment of others or to the apparent neglect of others is not beneficial. So, you know, I think that we need to see we need to see that this is an opportunity for Australia to demonstrate true commitment to this relationship, which is important, not just for how it's perceived by Solomon Islands, but also for how it's perceived by others in the region that may be recalibrating or thinking about how they want to take relationships with Australia and other partners forward. Is China getting a better understanding of how to build relationships in the Pacific at the same time? Well, I think all partners, given that there is so much focus on the Pacific at the moment, I think all partners are coming to terms with how best to learn and understand and listen to and hear from Pacific interlocutors. So I think everybody's doing a range of different things. China has certainly invested a lot of energy in terms of and resources in terms of uh, increasing its diplomatic presence, increasing the amount of uh, studying of the Pacific that's done in Chinese universities that prepare diplomats for working in the region. So they certainly, they have been building up their knowledge resources. Obviously, Australia has different resources to draw on. I think one of the things that we've seen very recently is something of a change in tone, a much stronger commitment to recognising the sovereignty and the independence of Solomon Islands. And I think that that's something that we need to see developed and maintained across government and officials and, and anyone that's wanting to operate in this space. That's Dr Tess Newton-Kane there from Griffith University. That's all from the World Today team for this week. The program's producer is Gavin Coote, associate producer Barney Porter and technical production from David Sargent. I'm Sally Sara. Enjoy your Easter weekend. I'm Sam Pawley from the ABC News Daily Podcast. This week, airports across the country have been thrown into chaos amid the Easter holiday rush, in part because of staff shortages due to COVID-19 close contact isolation rules. Today, epidemiologist Tony Blakely on whether the rules are really still necessary. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.